gonna be in the know About how we put together our little show If you'd like to hear the puppeteers And play the characters that you cheer So join us as we go, go, go Below the frame on the season finale of Below the Frame, we're talking to my friend, Muppet performer, Eric Jacobson. That's right. We're going to talk about what made him realize he needed to work for the Muppets. And of course, we're going to talk about all the characters that he plays. We'll also be learning about good eye focus. So blink twice if you understand. It's time to go Below the Frame. Go, go, go Below the Frame. Welcome to the season one finale of Below the Frame with Matt Vogel. Uh, that is right. If you didn't know that it's the season finale, surprise, it's uh, it's the season finale. Uh, I am Matt Vogel, and here we are. We have made it to episode 18, and I've got some, uh, I got some, some stats for you here about the podcast. So we've had over 15,000 downloads of this podcast. I have no idea if that is a lot or not, but it seems like a lot to me, and I am really happy with that number. 15,000 downloads, nearly 24 hours of content. You could listen to Below the Frame for a full day if that's what you want to do. Uh, people from Asia, Australia, Africa, Europe, South America, and of course, North America have downloaded the podcast. So thank you all for listening. You know, we've done 11 fake ads and 11 interruptions by my oldest son, Jack. And I, I think I saw him lurking about here earlier. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we've had uh, six Jerry songs and eight Jerry stories read by people who knew the great Muppet performer, in including Jerry on one of those stories, reading his own story. Plus, uh, we've asked nine Muppet performers a question about not puppets. And for today's finale, we're adding one more fake ad and a question about not puppets. So you do the math. I am uh, terrible at math. So uh, you can figure out those numbers. On this little podcast here, we have interviewed 25 people so far, including the Sesame Mentees, uh, a Muppet writer, and Wranglers from Sesame Street. But most of those interviews have been with Muppet performers, either from Sesame Street or from the Disney Muppet performer side. And sometimes they are both. And today is one of those. We're talking with my good friend, Eric Jacobson, who works for both Sesame Street and the Disney Muppets. And I, I'm so lucky. You know, Eric and I frequently work together as uh, Kermit and Miss Piggy, uh, or Kermit and Fozzie, or Floyd and Animal, or even uh, Big Bird and Oscar. So we, we get to do a lot together. Plus, we're friends, so it makes it even that much better. And I think you're going to enjoy this talk that we had, and uh, I know I did. And so, without further ado, I am ready. Are you ready for the season finale? Wunderbar, you're ready. So let's go Below the Frame with Eric Jacobson. Eric Jacobson, welcome to Below the Frame. Thank you. Thank well, you, Matt Vogel, for having yes, me here. Yes, uh, just have a seat. Make yourself at home. You know what? I feel very much at home right now. <laughs> Very much. Me too. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I have been for the past, I don't know, half a year, maybe yeah. longer. Yes, me too. I'm going to ask you some questions, Eric, about your life. Okay, I'll try to give you some answers about right. my life. That sounds good. As don't... opposed to somebody else's. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to hear about that. 
We want to hear about you, Eric. Uh, Eric, you grew up in Texas. What part of Texas did you grow up in? Fort Worth, Texas. Where is Fort Worth? Cowtown, where the West begins. Really? Yeah, it's north central Texas, right next to Dallas. Uh, Everybody refers to the airport there as being the Dallas airport. It is not as the Dallas Fort Worth airport. They it share sounds it. like you've you've got a, a little <laughs> bit of a a beef with this. Is that true? Beef. That's that's good. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> yeah, it is known as Cowtown. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it. Well, I mean, if you grow up in Fort Worth, you have a little bit of a a chip on your shoulder, a cow chip on your shoulder about yeah. Dallas. Um, always stealing the thunder. Everybody would always ask me, did you, so, oh, so that's right next to Dallas. So you went to Dallas a lot. No, almost never. I'm gonna, Everything I'm gonna, I needed was right there in Fort I'm Worth. Just, I'm going to scratch that off my question list because that was next. Did you go into Dallas? Forget it, we don't need that question <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Tell me a bit about growing up in Fort Worth. Well... I lived in the suburbs. Everybody did. Nobody lived downtown back then. Uh, Nobody lived in the city. So it was a very typical kind of suburban life, Um, riding my bike through the neighborhood and playing with my friends. And yeah, I I went to a school across town at Fort Worth Country Day, and uh, it was a great school. But since I lived all the way across town, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up, you know, because I'd be ferried back across town at the end of the day. And, you know, so I didn't have a lot of play dates like that. But I had a couple of close friends who lived close by. Friends in the neighborhood. um, Yeah, yeah, mostly. Mm -hmm. What kind of of things did you do uh, as a kid with your friends? I played Batman and Robin. Yes. (laughs) I loved wearing a cape. <laughs> you know what? It's weird. You still love wearing a cape, behind. don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Uh, that was one of my goals. I, I actually wanted to grow up to be, you know, one part of the dynamic duo. And yeah, my older friend was going to be Batman. I was going to be Robin. And uh, lo and behold, I did grow up to be a superhero, which is pretty cool. Super you, Grover. Yeah, Super Grover. You're right. Yeah. No yeah. sidekick I at least for get Super to Grover. wear a cape on my arm. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's not as satisfying, maybe, as wearing the cape and flowing it behind you as you mm-hmm. run down your street as an adult <laughs> man. <laughs> but I was, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I didn't see myself as a, a geek or a nerd or anything like that, but I guess I, I was a little bit, you know. I, I love playing Dungeons & Dragons with a, a group of friends. and I've never you know, played Dungeons into, and Dragons. No. I've never done that. No, is it just reading out that of a book? That surprises me because you are the I know. biggest I'm geek I know. I'm a huge nerd. But, I, <laughs> but I, no, I've never played. I never never did that. It's a lot we of fun. Should, would you teach me how to <laughs> play? It's a very complicated <laughs> game. I don't think I remember all the rules uh, now at all. But, but isn't it uh, just all in the book? Don't you just read? You know, it, what what's great about it is, you know, any of those pen and paper games is that the game board is all really in your head. It's all in your imagination. Well, and uh, I, I loved using my imagination and, you know, fantasy and pretend and all of that was really important to me growing up. Where was that fed from? Were you, did you watch a lot of TV or movies it, or probably, how, how did that come to you? Yeah, probably a lot of, TV and yeah. <laughs> movies, 
but also just being a, an only child, I really kind of had to entertain myself a lot. That probably fed into it a little bit, you know, just manufacturing all those worlds of play. Uh, your parents, what did they do? Oh, um, well, my mom did a lot of different things. She was a fabulous artist, and but she was also a social worker, and she was in politics, and uh, she ran local campaigns and did PR and <laughs> worked in a, a, a women's shelter and then went on to work for the Fort Worth Police Department. She was the first victim's assistance coordinator for the Fort Worth Police Department. And it was something she was really proud of. Yeah, I, I knew that about yeah. your mom, but, and I knew that she was an artist. I've seen some of her art, which mm-hmm. is really great. I did not know she did those other things. I don't think I knew that she was a social worker or worked at a women's shelter. That seemed very important to her. That must have been. Yeah, um, she, was, she, was a, she was very much an activist. And tell me about your dad. Uh, he worked for the same company his entire life as a general contractor. So he so built kind of a lot of big buildings in Fort Worth. And even today, those buildings are still there? Yeah, some of them. At one time, he had built the tallest building in Fort Worth. It's not the tallest one anymore. Yeah. But, yeah, he built museums. There's a couple of, I mean, uh, Fort Worth has a really fine cultural scene. And there's some really great world-class museums there. Uh, the Kimball Art Museum and the Eamon Carter. And, and your dad was involved in, in both of those. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting parents with really interesting jobs and jobs that kind of, in, in a way, give back to, to society. Yeah, yeah. Both of them. I I guess so. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you you can't walk into a building without it being built first. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah that's true. Yeah, and my mom did an awful lot of things. And and you said she was involved in politics. Well, when you were in yeah. high school, tell us about what you did. Okay, so I was a congressional page. And what does yeah. that mean? What does well, that mean? <laughs> they don't have them anymore. They don't? No, the page program is defunct, but it hmm. it lasted for a good long time. <laughs> you know, well over 100 years. And it was great. It was a wonderful uh, learning experience for me. And, and, you know, both about government, but also, you know, going away from home and living on my own before college. Um, was this when you were a senior? No, I was a junior in high school. How long were you away? Uh, for a semester. Some kids did it for two. I just did it for one. Yeah. What were the kind of things that you did well, as a page? You know, uh, most pages, they delivered uh, mail, basically. They, they did inner office mail from the House floor to congressional offices and in between congressional offices. But there were different jobs. And my, my job was, I, I was one of the documentarian pages. There were just two of them. And we were responsible for collating and distributing documents that would be considered on the House floor every day. Sounds important. Yeah. That's an important <laughs> job. <laughs> there was a lot of Without lot those of papers, that went with that. what do you do without yeah, those papers? We'd, we'd get, yeah, I mean, we'd collect them from the document room in the morning. You know, they were all freshly printed, and then we'd take them to the, the House floor and make sure that the minority side had, you know, all the documents it needed, majority side. And beyond that, though, beyond that, 
we, we had a little desk on the rostrum where we were posted. We, we were the only pages who were allowed in the well of uh, the House. And if one of the members said, uh, Mr. Speaker, I ask unanimous consent, that was our little alert. And we just sprung up and we would run toward the member. And it meant he had a piece of paper that needed mm-hmm. to be taken up to the rostrum. And so it's kind of like, in our world, a PA. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Right? Somebody that just does whatever is asked of them, a gopher, they just do do what is, is necessary. Yeah, but we had these very specific jobs that we yeah. had. We'd fill the water for the... <laughs> Yep, <laughs> for the speaker. But the best, the best part of the job, I think. Well, there are two really cool things. One was that the documentarians were responsible for um, that is completely archaic, and I'm sure this is not the way they do it now. <laughs> but we were responsible for these bells and lights that communicated all over. Capitol Hill, wherever members might be. There what was this system of bells and lights that notified members of what was happening on the House floor. Like we're going to vote moment. on, we're going to vote on yeah. something. You got to come back. Yep. Yep. Ah. You know, and there is a whole coded system that could tell members, okay, yeah, there's a quorum call or there's a vote. You probably know. right. It's probably gone by now. Yeah. People probably yeah. They just, just text get texts. Yeah. Now, I'm sure. There was even like a, a code for like a civil distressed, or basically World War Three. Really? Yeah. And, and they taught you what, I, yeah, that, I had, was, what that I button have, was? I could have caused mass chaos and hysteria. <laughs> well, <laughs> why didn't you go into politics? Because I became a page and I saw how ugly uh, it was. <laughs> okay, so that, did you have aspirations of maybe being no, in politics? not really, no. not really, but it certainly cemented it in my head that that's definitely not for you. Not for me. But, but wait, wait the coolest yeah, 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 part yeah, yes. okay. the coolest part of the job was that I got to raise and lower the flag on top of the Capitol building. That is very cool. Yes. Every day that the house was in session, I go up and raise so the flag. You went all the way up. Yeah, on on the house side and that that was really neat. I mean just to go up there for a, you know, 16, 17-year-old kid and be able to look out <laughs> over Washington yeah. DC from the highest point. It's just, it filled you with pride and it was such a huge honor. It was, it was really neat. And it was a great way to make friends. Hey, you want to go up on top of the Capitol? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because not too many people had keys to the, <laughs> to the so, roof. So cool. You, you had keys to the roof and you could have started a lot of panic. A lot of panic. With those yeah. buttons. But you didn't go into politics. No. You, you were interested in film. Yeah. Why were you interested in film? Oh, I was always big in the arts, and I I loved to draw. Everybody thought I was going to be a drawer, a professional drawer, <laughs> when I grew up. Um, but I I loved the visual arts. I loved the performing arts. Did you do any acting I, when you were growing I did, up? I did some acting and musical theater. I went to this wonderful camp in San Antonio, Texas, that was arts-based, and that's probably where I really, I really discovered how much I loved the performing arts. And so I just loved all these different things. And, you know, growing up seeing Star Wars and all these great Spielberg movies, that probably inspired me too to want to go into film. Did you and, make any films when you were growing up? Yeah, some. You know, it wasn't as easy back then. 
you had to have some expensive equipment. <laughs> That's right. You needed a camera, at yeah. least. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but I made some, I made some, you know, VHS movies, home movies with friends. And we'd come up with these stories and basically, you know, just ad libbing in front of the camera. Yeah, I, we did the same thing. And I had a group of friends the, edit in camera. Like, okay, yes. what happens next? Yes, <laughs> you, you couldn't edit. it. There was no real words. editing. That's right. You kind of had to go. All right. We're out of that scene. Pause the camera. Yeah. Okay. We, we what happens next? Okay. This happens next. <laughs> yeah. We did that same thing with my group of friends. Yeah. We would just make these films and just, it was completely made up. We had a rough yeah. idea of a story, but mm. mostly we were just, when we would stop the camera, we'd say, what happens next? Okay, yeah. great. We'll yeah. do that now. And somebody would start filming again. Yeah. So, that yeah, was our film. Been, yeah, that's that's I mean, that's where Super Tim came from and Super Tim Two, the <laughs> sequel, came from. Okay. And then I also made some really cool uh Super Eight films. I got hold of a Super Eight camera and experimented with some animation, stop motion stuff. So all all the stuff that I I did led me to believe that, oh, this is maybe a way of combining a lot of different interests that I have. I can perform, I can write, I can um, really exercise, you know, stimulate the visual side of my artistry as well as do all these other things. And so I pursued film as a career and went to film school. And you went to NYU? Is that uh, right? Yeah, I went to NYU. I went to uh, the Tisch School of the Arts there, undergrad. I was in the undergrad film program there. Something I didn't mm -hmm. ask you up to now, Eric, mm -hmm. is that what? the Muppets, Sesame mm -hmm. Street, certainly yeah. they were a part of your life. Oh, yeah. Up. Yeah, well, you didn't ask me about that. No, I didn't. No, I know. That's what but I'm, I'm acknowledging that. that. <laughs> I'm acknowledging that right now. You, <laughs> you, you must have been a fan of the Muppets and a fan of Sesame Street, and you yeah. certainly knew who Jim Henson was. And how, how deep was that understanding or your uh, your fandom of Muppets and, and Sesame Street when you were growing up? Yeah, well, I certainly watched Sesame Street as a youngin, and then the Muppet Show when it came on, I was all about that. And like yourself, I I I just kind of tracked right with. Whatever Jim Henson and his crazy family uh, <laughs> of yeah. performers were doing, they, I just, I, I was right there and I was ready to be their audience. But I had, I had a Fisher Price Kermit the Frog hand puppet, and I had, I had the Muppet movie soundtrack album that I, I just listened to incessantly. Yeah, I loved, I loved the Muppets. Growing up, yeah. and I had other puppets too, and I—that was part of, definitely a part of, my interest in performing in the arts. Although I didn't probably consider it a viable career path until much later. Uh, but yeah. I loved—I loved all that stuff. I, I really—I I wanted to—I wanted to learn to become a ventriloquist at one time. I had a Charlie McCarthy vent dummy, you know, just the store bought. One, right? Yeah, with the string on the back of with the, the head. string on the back, and I probably knew about Charlie McCarthy because Edgar Bergen had guested on the Muppet Show as well as yeah. on the Muppet Movie. So I had this Charlie McCarthy 
dummy, and I didn't I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I didn't know how to make it work. Wasn't but was there I really, a record or anything with it that came with no, it that, to teach you? Nothing. Not the one I had. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's what it, what it was. But, but I was a little disappointed, to too, that it didn't do all the things that Charlie McCarthy could do. You wanted the eyes to move. I wanted the head to move independently. I wanted the uh, eyes yeah. to move. Yes. Or blink that, or something. I wanted yeah. it to do more than it could. And so I, I actually opened him up to try and <laughs> figure out how I could make that happen and just wound up with a decapitated Charlie McCarthy. <laughs> oh. I, d- I didn't, you know, I couldn't figure it out. And then I couldn't figure out how to put them back together. So <laughs> so he remained decapitated. Yeah. So you had some experience <laughs> with puppetry on your own and you were a fan of Muppets. Yeah. But you ultimately decided you wanted to be a filmmaker. You go to NYU. Yeah. Uh, how, what, how was your experience at, at, at NYU? It was really great. It was really great. It, it was, you know, like... Any young kid who moves far away from home, it was uh, an eye-opening experience moving to New York of oh my all gosh. places and just kind of starting fresh and making new friends. And NYU is great because it just, um, at least back then, they just would let you dive in and you're making films like first semester just right out of the gate back then they had a a, a super eight class and i mean it, super eight had it was it was practically impossible to find in the early 90s yeah i, I had a super eight camera as well that my uncle had given me and it was so hard to find film for it yeah in, the, in the 90s I, I could not find film for it but so it seemed like that class uh, was probably fading it, the, the yeah, the class was fading, but you know, digital hadn't quite dawned either. So, <laughs> so what do you shoot films on other than? What well, you we, use? we so we started off. There was a Super Eight class, and then after that, you graduated to sixteen millimeter. And uh, so I did a lot of sixteen millimeter projects, but then also uh, video and sound. You know, you take all these classes in the different disciplines. And I, I wound up in uh, the television side of things because I had decided I wanted to go into television puppetry and work for the Muppets. And when did you decide this? Mm, well, the end of that first year, because that's when Jim passed away. And I had just gotten home and you know heard it on the news from the other room and just stood there with my m- mouth on the floor and I and I just knew in that moment oh my gosh I have to do something to help continue this man's legacy I, it just all of a sudden I I understood how much he had meant to me growing up just yeah in one revelatory moment and, and you literally thought, well, I've got to go and do this. I, yeah. I need to get into television puppetry. Well, I didn't know if it, I didn't know that it was going to be performance necessarily, but but I, I figured that out pretty quick. But that moment really hit you. Yeah, and, I mean, you kind of changed your your trajectory. Yeah, in a ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I do feel like this is 
an offshoot of what I was doing before. You know, because I was always, I was just always trying to do something that would marry all of my interests and passions. And, and puppetry does that. Television puppetry really does that. And all of the, everything that I learned in film school really applies as well to being a performer um, in in television. So uh, it's, it just feels like it's been a natural progression for me. So how did you go about this? Mm-hmm. You decide to, you, you need to follow in the footsteps of Jim Henson mm-hmm. by keeping his legacy alive. Yeah. Well, what's your first step? Well, I was in New York City, which really helped. <laughs> That's right. The Jim Henson Company had been based there for decades and the entire time that Jim was alive. And uh, so it was still very much a, a center you know, a hub, if you will, for the company. And Sesame Street continues to be shot in New York. So, yeah, the Henson Company still has a, a presence in New York, a very strong presence. So it was very, you know, very convenient, me being a college student, to seek out an internship with the Jim Henson Company. Which you got. Yes. And what yeah. were you doing as an intern? I worked in the dub room. So I made copies of everything in the tape library that people wanted a copy of. People would say like, I, I, we need a copy of Muppet Show episode 205. Yes. Yeah, for whatever it. reason. And I, and I had access to it and, you know, I'd put it in the machine, put in another tape in another machine. <laughs> right. And, uh, and hit play and record. And it was basically my job then to sit there and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of you were at least taking in this art form and this this potential career yeah. that you were getting a lot of exposure to Muppet stuff. Yes. Watching hours and hours of Muppet content. Yeah, by the time I'd gotten that internship, I I decided, yeah, I I'd like to try and become a Muppet performer. D- so, and did you know what that meant? Did you know you had needed a monitor and you needed to look at a monitor and you needed to did you know any of that? Not Initially, but by that time, yes, yes, by that time. But I, you know, I didn't know, you know, everything that went into it, obviously. But I, I, I was there at the Henson Company. I was watching all this material and just soaking it all in. And then at the end of the day, I'd go back to my dorm and flip on the, the camera and try something out that I had seen that day that really struck me. Just you by yourself. Yeah, well, there were a few times when I, I, you know, I'd practice with somebody else who might have a similar idea that they might want to be a puppeteer with the Muppets. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you you self-taught yourself. You self-taught yourself. You self-taught how to use the monitor. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was there, you know, I was there at the Henson Company at a time when there was a whole new flurry of activity after after Jim. You know, it was the first kind of real push to go back into production after Jim had passed. So there were uh, these spots that were done for Good Morning America. There was Dog City that was being shot in this little studio, Carriage House studio, where I was working. Uh, and there was... Um, a show called City Kids. Were you able to go in and see what they were doing? Yeah. I was still working upstairs in the dub room, but 
I'd go down and you know, they'd ask me to do something every now and then downstairs. Well, not puppetry stuff. No, 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 no. Did they know? Did anybody there know? Oh, this guy's an aspiring puppeteer. I tried to keep it quiet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, you don't want to be like, hey, guys. I mean, you know, yeah. some people might do that, but. Yeah, I, I wanted to do my job and right. do it well and be kept around long enough that I could learn the things I, I wanted to learn. I knew I wasn't hired to be a puppeteer. So, so what, were you, what were you seeing when you went down to the set? Gosh, I, I mean, it's such a small little studio. You you just you could see everything that the performers were tackling, which was really great. There wasn't a lot of distance between you and <laughs> right. And the I remember that space. Yeah, it's it's very small. Yeah. So, you know, I I saw the puppeteers problem solving most mostly. That's what I I noticed was them problem solving, figuring things out, how to make the shot work. And, and I assume the script better and, and that all the too, things that yeah, we do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I got to see, you know, Kevin doing that on Dog City. And he had, I think Donnie Reardon was there assisting, doing some smaller, small things. And, and for the GMA spots, all the guys came in, all the big mm-hmm. guns, you know, Frank and Jerry and Steve and Dave. Richard had yeah. sadly already passed. And, um, you know, just seeing them do their thing and work together and figure stuff out. It's all, it, it, that's what dawned on me was that, it, you know, half of it is just figuring it out, figuring yeah. out how the, all the puzzle pieces fit together and what shape they should actually be. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool that you got to see those guys yeah. come in and do those GMA spots. How yeah. amazing. There probably weren't that many people in the room. No, no. I mean, it, I mean, it was it was packed because it was a small room, but it wasn't a lot of people. So did I you talk really, to anybody? Did you oh, say anything to anybody? No, I I, I was very that, shy. I'm that checks I'm out. I, very. I, I'm still I, to this day very shy. Yeah, me too. I don't. I wouldn't have felt comfortable Mm-mm. going up and saying anything to those guys. It, and it was the first time. It was kind. Of, you could see that reunion that always happens yeah. with, with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so they were so happy to see each other and be in each other's company. Yeah, that was, that was really neat to see as well. How were you able to transition and and do something with a puppet in front of a camera on a mm-hmm. set? What was your first on-set puppetry experience? Mm, yeah, it's different. <laughs> it's different than doing it at home. I think for one, you're usually a lot farther away from the camera when you're in a studio. <laughs> That's right. And it that is a little disorienting. And then there are all these other characters that are on, you know, with you. Yeah, you're no longer in a vacuum. Yeah, you're not in a vacuum. It's no longer just you. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a lot of other stuff going on in the frame, and you have to be aware of that as well as what you yourself are trying to do. So my first big break was um, on Sesame Street in an insert with Samuel Ramey, the opera singer. I was thinking the director. Yeah. Sam yeah, Ramey. Exactly. exactly. No, there's a, <laughs> Not, Sa- there's a Sam Ramey who's okay. a very renowned opera singer. And uh, he, was, he was singing, L is the letter that I love the most. L lets you go. Low, 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 low. Wow. And um, yeah, but much better than that. <laughs> and, what a uh, bad. <laughs> 
and I got pulled in. I, I'd been observing on the show for some time, you know, kind of skipping ahead here, but I had gotten in uh, a number of puppeteer workshops led by Jane Henson. I'd been working as a puppeteer in New York City. Live uh, puppetry, theater puppetry, live correct? Live theater puppetry, where Jane and her daughter Cheryl, uh, they they would come around and they, they saw what I was doing and became Who you working big with? supporters of mine. Uh, I, I was working with a, a fellow named Stephen Witterman, and he had a company called The Puppet Company in Union Square, across the street from my dorm. So, <laughs> wow, convenient. <laughs> it was very convenient. Yeah. And, uh, and he, he wound up becoming a great mentor to me and um, really encouraged me along the way. Uh, I can't say enough nice things about him. He, he, he worked with uh, Bill Baird in his last troop on Barrow Street. And so he had this enormous legacy that he was carrying forward with, with marionettes mostly. Yeah, you because know, that's what Bill did. But he loved the Muppets and really encouraged me all, all along the way. And you know, I think he put more hand puppets in his shows because that's something I wanted to do. Um, it's so great to have such a mentor yeah, to yeah. support you and encourage you. He was that's terrific. Fantastic. And he knew the Hensons. And so they were coming around just to see him and his show, see what he was doing. And, you know, and I was there. So... Yeah, I got to I got to know them, and they were really terrific. The way they supported me and nurtured me along the way as well. So I got to do these workshops, and eventually I felt like I was I was ready to send in my official tape, my my calling card, saying, you know, this is my audition. Okay, guys, this is it right here. <laughs> This is what I want you to look at. This is what I'm proud of, and I want you to see. And how long this, did you work on that? that thing? I don't know. It, no, it didn't take me a long time to do it. Not as long as it took me to feel like I'm ready. I knew from being an intern and seeing, you know, it, it all up close. I knew that you don't just work for the Muppets. You have to. You have to be good enough when you walk through the door. And that takes a lot of work. So that's what I did. I buckled down and I really, I, I worked on being the best puppeteer I could possibly be before I made that tape to send in. Right. Wanted, that's your shot. As far as you know, yeah, that's your yeah, shot. Yeah. I wanted them to see that and say, okay, he's good enough to work with us. Not he's good enough to maybe look at again in a few years. So you worked, you sent this tape in, yeah. you got invited to some workshops yeah. with Jane, and then you find yourself on Sesame Street yeah. helping out Samuel Ramey, yes. not and the I, film director. And, and David Rudman, and uh, I think it was David and Peter, they they threw me in because Kevin was away, he was off doing something else, and they had seen me just hanging out for months, yeah. <laughs> basically. Did, had, you, had you talked to them or not had any conversations A with little them? bit. Yeah, of course. But, you know, I was shy and I also, you know, I I, I didn't want to get in their way and right. all of that. And I was sure. there That's too. That's very like, respectful and unassum unassuming. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they could, Sesame Street could do this back then where they just throw in another performer. Right. And uh, this was a big, it was a big scene with a lot of puppets in it. 
And so they just said, hey, you want to grab a puppet? So, That's so cool. Yeah. It's right before Christmas. Cool. So it was it was perfect. I, I felt like it was a Christmas present. How'd, how'd you do? I did all right. I hung in Good. there. Yeah. 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 Uh, you were ready. I was. I was ready. I was ready. Yeah. So, did you then begin working on Sesame Street after that, or did you go away mm-hmm. and do other other shows, other other stuff? I did a lot of other stuff. I did a show where I assisted mostly Donnie Reardon, but also Stephanie Bruzo called Rory and Me, and I also wrangled on that show it was for the Learning Wait, Channel. You were you were a wrangler? Yeah, on that I did, show. I did not. I did not know that. I didn't know that you did wrangling on that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think I ever did it again after that. So <laughs> I don't know if that's telling of my abilities my, there. But or, still, it's very cool. You were doing what you, what you needed to do, and it also helped uh, give you this knowledge absolutely. of how these puppets work. Absolutely. And- I, it, was a great, it was a great experience, uh, all in all. It was, it was great. And, um, yeah, one of our directors on uh, Sesame Street, Scott Preston, I, I first met him there. And um, let's see, I did that. I did a show called Once Upon a Tree. Mm-hmm. Played Billy Bob where, the yeah, Bobcat. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got yeah. a fan in the house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hold on just a second, Eric. It's time for a word from our sponsor. One night at a fancy pants party where a lot of conversation and eye contact is happening. (laughs) See what I mean? I'm very funny. Say, Edith, I'm not sure if you're paying attention to what's being said. Why don't you look at me so I know we're making a personal connection at this fancy pants party where a lot of conversation and eye contact is happening? Oh, well, I don't know what to say. Edith, what's wrong with your eyes? Yes, you're looking around very non-specifically. Your eyes are not focusing on anything. <laughs> Edith and so many other puppets like her suffer each and every day. Oh, what, what am I going to do? My eyes aren't focusing where they should. Sometimes I'm looking over here, and sometimes I'm looking over there, and sometimes I just stare at the ceiling. What you've got is a terrible case of bad eye focus. Oh, no! Calm down, Edith. Besides, the impact is a little lost because I don't know if you're saying, oh, no, because of the bad eye focus or because your shoe's untied because that's where you're looking. Well, what am I going to do? Don't fret, Edith. There's help. There is? What is it? It's good eye focus. Good eye focus? What's that? Good eye focus is what every puppet needs to help them look realistic and more lifelike. Without good eye focus, you're just a poorly performed puppet with no sense of focus or reality at a fancy pants party where a lot of conversation and eye contact is happening. Well, how do I get good eye focus? Well, Edith, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of commitment, and for starters, you need to look down the barrel of the lens. Look down the who's it of the wah? The barrel of the lens, Edith. I know this is a fake radio ad, but just go with it. Television puppets work to television monitors shot by a television camera, and that camera has a lens. And your puppet eyes need to be able to look at that camera directly in the center. That's the first step. If you can do that, then you've got a fighting chance, Edith. 
Oh, all right. Practice good eye focus every day if you want to look realistic and more lifelike. And who knows, Edith? The next time you're at a fancy pants party where a lot of conversation and eye contact is happening. Say, Edith, I've just got to say, I noticed that you've been looking right at me during my hilarious frozen carrot anecdote. He's right, Edith. Your eyes. They're focused. You see me, Edith. You really see me. Don't I? And I've been waiting a long time to roll my eyes at the lot of you. So take this. Oh. My. Edith, your eye focus is incredible. Thanks, good eye focus. Good eye focus. It's kind of important. That's right. Today's episode of Below the Frame is brought to you by Good Eye Focus. And oh, yes, Dad, Jack, what's the fake ad about today? <sighs> Actually, Jack, it's about Good Eye Focus. And before you say anything, here to talk about that is Martin P. Robinson. Hello, Martin Robinson here with some thoughts about eye focus. Puppets are symbolic creatures. They don't do everything. If you want that, just use a human. Within the simplified language of puppetry, there's a lot of power, and one of our most effective tools is focus. Now imagine a puppet, on camera, directly addressing the people at home. If a strong connection is to be made, the performer must be able to look exactly into the lens, not even a bit off. This translates to the eye of the viewer, which speaks directly to their heart. When you can work this simple yet profound trick at will, the audience can be an open vessel for whatever you have to communicate. Thank you, Marty. Well, Jack? Wow, great information. Jack, you're sounding a little... Well, you're sounding a little fake. Hmm? You mean like your ads? Uh, Well, I... Just trying to keep it real, or fake, or whatever. Gotta go. Bye, Jack. I'd like to thank Good Eye Focus for being a sponsor of Below the Frame. We're back with Eric Jacobson. You then came back to Sesame Street. Yeah. And at some point, you were handed over <laughs> these legacy characters. Yeah. Bert, Grover, uh, later Guy Smiley, later Oscar. But, you know, you pretty much play all of the characters that Frank Oz originated on Sesame Street, with the exception of Cookie Monster, yeah. who's uh, played by David Rudman. Yes. How did that come about? Well, uh, let's see. I think I was working on Bear in the Big Blue House, you know, just assisting and doubling on that show when... You know, the call was sent out for puppeteers to come in and audition. And I think, you know, all this experience that I'd had in live theater and the Hensons knowing me mostly through that, but also the workshops, you know, where Jane had seen my work on camera and then gaining the the, the trust of folks like Jim Martin and, and others uh, who worked on Sesame Street and got to see what I was capable of. I think that all helped in, in me getting an invitation <laughs> to audition. And and then in thinking that I, you know, I might have what it took. You know, I, I was still very young, and, and, you know, in my 20s, and largely unproven, except on these smaller outside projects. But I knew this was this was something I could do, and I, I knew it. Yeah, I I I had the confidence. I I knew I could. I I already felt really good about 
where I stood with my skills as a puppeteer. But I also knew that I also have this this other skill set that hadn't been tapped on yet, which is you know mimicry and being able to hear some you know take somebody's voice and emulate it. And, yes, uh, your vocal cords are very flexible. They're able to transform into so many varied characters. How do you do that? Have you always been able to alter your voice like that? I, when did you first yeah. notice you could do that? When I was a kid, you know, uh, actually with the with the Muppet movie soundtrack album, I would sing along with it and try to get my voice to resonate with Jim as he was singing Rainbow Connection or with Fozzie doing America, America the, Beautiful. the Beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even as a kid, you were doing this. Yeah. I, I, I didn't consider it as... You know, again, something that would be useful later in a in in a career situation. But yeah, and then yeah, and just and then doing all sorts of different voices growing up because yeah, I was an only child. <laughs> <laughs> what else are you gonna do? What else? Yeah, I gotta talk to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so you did this audition. You felt confident about it. Yeah, I did. I felt good. I couldn't figure out how to put Cookie Monster on my hand. Um, <laughs> like literally, fig- like, like you actually yeah, couldn't. I figure literally out. couldn't figure it out because nobody said there's a, a glove gl- there. There's a glove in there, <laughs> but it, you know, at the time it was also made for Frank's hand, and my hand's much smaller, and so I could not figure it out, and. <laughs> that was a little nerve-wracking. Yeah, but I, I felt pretty good about all the uh, work I did in the audition, and then it was just you know a matter of waiting. But I still I still have the I still have the the letter that was sent out. You do? Yeah, Cheryl, Cheryl Henson sent out a letter. That's very really cool. cool. Yeah, and this said, "Hey, Eric Jacobson is playing Burton Grover." Yeah, so, yeah. So back yeah. off. <laughs> I don't think it was that much. I think it was because oh. they they didn't want to truly commit to anybody, and you know, so they they listed a couple people for each character, and you know, and this is still you know Frank. It's you know, it's they're really his characters, and he's still around. And he's still around. <laughs> he was I mean, then, he and he's still in, now. I remember for a long time he would come in and do like a day. Yeah. Per season or something like that, and he would come in and do a cookie bit or a Grover bit with Jerry as a, you know customer Grover bit, or mm-hmm. uh, he would do that for a while, and then it kind of happened less. He got busy doing other things, and uh, I guess that's kind of when there was this transition to you as Grover and Bert, and, yeah. and to to David as Cookie Monster. I remember literally the day that it happened with Cookie Monster. There was a bit that Frank was doing as Grover, and then he exits the frame or something, and Cookie Monster comes in, and it's Frank at first, and something happens, and then Grover comes into the scene, and it's Frank again, and I remember him just giving it to David and saying, okay, you do Cookie. You do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, was there a similar thing that happened with you and Grover? Mm, I don't remember a specific moment like that. It was actually, I think I doubled for Cookie Monster. And at first he was having me, I was like doing the voice and that felt really weird about doing that in front of uh, him. Yes, of course. <laughs> but then he yeah, wound I up- I always feel very awkward about doing that yeah. in the few times that that's had to happen with me and with Carol and me. Yeah. Because that's mm-hmm. the guy right there yeah. doing the voice. Yeah. He's the real guy. Uh, yeah, and I've never liked <laughs> doing that. Yeah, so that that was weird. 
but I wound up, he, he just, he wasn't sure if he could throw his voice in the middle of the scene, but he wound up being able to, which I was thankful for. Yeah, but I've, I've had to do that a few times where um, I had to perform in front of Frank. <laughs> you, but you also, you were assisting him. I think you did assist him quite a bit too, right? Oh, I did assist, right? yeah, yes. So when I was tapped to start filling in for Frank, uh, the moment that happened, I was assisting him uh, on everything that he did when, right. he, when he did come in. I think the first time I assisted him was actually on Elmo and Grouchland. There were some reshoots. I didn't work on the movie until this one day of reshoots that they did with Bert yeah. and Ernie. In, in New York City. In New York City. I think you, Yeah, because we shot the movie in too, North Carolina. Right? You yeah, were I was there. Steve. I was helping out Steve, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so I, I assisted Frank on that. I, I asked him, uh, is there anything specific you want me to do? And he said, just do what you do. <laughs> There you go. Okay. All right. Yeah. But it was great. I think there's there's no better training ground than working alongside yeah. the person that plays those characters. Well, yes. yes. I mean, that's the best because you really are, you're so close to them and you're f- so laser focused on that character now and how mm-hmm. that person is playing that character that it, it just helps. It really enhances your uh, knowledge base of that person's performance. I agree. And in, in also just psychologically, I think it's nice because you, you you create a bond with the performer and this trust in, you know, and he just immediately, you know, accepted me and my choices and said, yeah, do what you do. But it's it's wonderful just to be in the room with them too, you know, watching them perform and observing their process. And Frank has a very specific process. Do you feel you like know, you've he, adapted some of that for how you yeah, definitely. approach a scene? Definitely. To kind of continue? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we all, all of us who've had the uh, honor to be in a room with Frank when he was performing have gained some knowledge to how this is supposed to be done. Yes. You know, it all comes down to that moment when the puppeteers put their arms up in the air. And that's that's where the magic really happens. So it takes priority over everything else. You know, the way I, this is how I see it, you know, through Frank's eyes. So the material serves the performance. Everything, everything has to serve the performance. The performance can't serve, you know, be subservient to anything else. And I learned that watching Frank and seeing how he would take a script and he would just, you know, cross things out and move things around, switch them around, give a different character a line. Like there was a moment when we were there doing those reshoots for Elmo and Grouchland where Frank said, let's try this, Stevie, where you you take my lines and I'll take your lines. Yeah. And it all of a sudden it made sense. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? But it's coming from the person that yeah. has created, created these characters yes. and they, who better to know what it mm-hmm. is that those characters need to be doing how they need to yeah. be presented. Oh, that's, a, yeah. that's fun. That's really cool I, and remarkable. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've tried to adopt some of that outlook. You know, it's not always possible to take the same amount of license that Frank does, but I think it's it's good to keep that in the mix. Yeah, because we do see this as we are a group of collaborators mm-hmm. that collaborate with the writers, the director, mm-hmm. the producers, mm-hmm. the whole project. We are part of that collaboration that, as you said, ultimately is about those characters Yeah, doing what they do on screen. Yep. Yeah. And speaking of characters that we see on screen, just a little, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about mm. 
the characters that you play on Sesame Street. Just tell yeah, me yeah, a little sure. bit about Bert. What's your take on Bert? Who is he? Because <laughs> I know that some of it is, this is what your interpretation of Frank's version of Bert. Yeah, right? yeah. But there's some insight probably that you have into that character that maybe not everybody might see. Hmm. Well, I, I don't know what everybody else sees, but... <laughs> what do you see then? What I see is somebody who is very fastidious, uh, who likes things to be orderly. He also likes, he likes things that might be boring to other people, but he is not a boring person. He's very passionate about boring things. <laughs> That's right. Oatmeal, paper clips. <laughs> yes. He is passionate about he's bottle pa- caps. Yeah, he's passionate about <laughs> all these things. And, and um, you know, other people might find them boring. But he himself is not a boring character, if that makes yes. sense. It does, that's absolutely. A, and the, the other side of that coin is your, you know, Bert's comedy partner is yeah. Ernie, who is chaos, a little more chaotic and mm-hmm. colorful and uh, outgoing or, or yeah. you know, Well, that's crazy, that, I think that's wild. where they, but that's where they, they do overlap, I think, is that they both can be very enthusiastic yes. just about different things. But yes, one cannot overstate the importance of Ernie in who Bert is. And he is also, he's all those things that I mentioned, but he's also one half of a comedy team in a classic duo. Yeah, in, in the vein of Abbott and Costello. Yes, yes. Or the odd couple. Yep. They, they, they're kind of like a little bit of both to me. And you see that it's it's directly referenced in some of the sketches that they did way back. You know, Bert and Ernie in the Egyptian tomb, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. just that's Abbott and Costello. And um, you know, the Odd Couple was such a, a big thing in the late '60s, early '70s. It, it really permeated through popular culture and. I really feel that Bert and Ernie grew out of that, you know, polar opposites trying to, you know, roommates trying to get along. Yeah, timeless comedy duo mm-hmm. is what they are. They've yeah. been around since, as long as there have been people creating comedy, I think. Those How kind long of has dynamics. that been, by the way? How like long have people, creating, people been creating comedy? Creating, oh, I think at least since 1983. Okay. Maybe 82. All right. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I th- I I think I would have gone with the nineties, <laughs> but maybe, yeah. maybe, 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 maybe. I don't know. What do, What do I know? I don't know. I'm just sitting here asking questions. I don't have any answers. <laughs> uh, tell me about Grover. What's something that people sometimes get wrong about their understanding of who he yeah. is? That's yeah. a thing that happens often, it does. unintentionally, but. It does. Yeah, it's unintentional. Everybody loves these characters. They do. Everybody loves Grover. I love Grover. But it's no wonder that sometimes people don't understand the character fully. Because he's so many different things. He can be sweet and endearing and sincere. But he can also be a pain in the neck. (laughs) You know, he's a superhero. And... A know-it-all, but he's also somebody who can, you know, he, he means well and he wants to help. 
And I think that's the most important aspect of the character is how much he wants to help others. It's well-meaning. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I think sometimes that is lost on folks. And uh, they either see him, like, they'll forget that he's not really that bright. <laughs> His know-it-all-itiveness is often wrong. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and and so like when when he's uh given the responsibility of teaching something I always look around and see is there anybody else who can be you know can help him because yeah. he's not going to get it right as as well intentioned as he yeah. is yeah it's it's going to be misunderstood he he understands something different than what we do and oftentimes he'll come back around to it and go of course that's of course what I meant mhm mhm which is, Again, you know, he covers a little bit there. You know, as much as yeah. he can be very sincere and sweet, he does cover sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's also a character, you have to remember, he's always trying to help. Right. So he's always trying, even if people don't want his help. He's always trying. <laughs> I, yeah, he's always trying. And, and that's that's and uh, the dynamic that, between Grover and yeah, Fat Blue. Yes, yeah, yeah. Like, there, there comes a point. I think it... it in the beginning, maybe, the customer, he thinks, you know, this might be the day that he gets it right. <laughs> yes. But he never does. And and by the end, he's just completely fed up with this waiter trying his best to help him. He doesn't want his help anymore. It's like, please, yeah. just get, will somebody else <laughs> wait on my table? But that's something that, you know, you have to remember about the character, too, is that He's not one to give up at all. He's probably the last character on Sesame Street to give up. He will run through every possible scenario in his brain yes. to accomplish something no matter how Absolute, off it may be. Absolutely. And that's that's something that I have to keep reminding folks as well. You know, the, the, yeah. those two things really uh, that I have to keep reminding people about is that hmm. he does not give up. And he's not that smart. Yeah. And, but who better to kind of carry that on? You, you, we do have to protect the integrity of those characters mm-hmm. because we kind of know them the best. Yeah. We know them better than anybody unless, you know, I guess better than not better than Frank. I would say Frank <laughs> probably knows Grover maybe. Uh, only because it came originally from him. Yeah. But now you're charged mm-hmm. with continuing that character and the legacy of that character. So it now does fall to you to say – and this is close, it's not quite right, here's where we need to tweak that. Yeah. And that falls back to collaboration. Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes you you can like give something a pass because it's funny and yes. in, in the comedy, you know, it's strong enough to carry the character from point A to point B. But yeah, it's, it's good when the character can be consistent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you play Oscar now. You've been playing him for just a little while. But you grew mm-hmm. up with this character. Yeah. And uh, for me, on the other side of that, I, I play Big Bird. And yeah. I've been doing it for quite a while. And, and But I also grew up with that character. But they're both Carol Spinney creations. Oh, yeah. Characters that he really put the heart into. And, and I, I do mean that intentionally with Oscar because Oscar does have a heart. That's what Carol always said, you know, that he had a heart of gold. He'd have famous disagreements with John Stone on the matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I would have to side with Carol. As brilliant <laughs> as John Stone was. Yes, yes. And I get where John was coming from. You know, he just thinks that that's the funnier way to portray the character. But I think the character has lasted as long as it has because of the complexity that Carol brought to Austin. Yeah, you don't often see that heart of gold no, side. No, it's, it's but when you do, it's lovely. It makes them more real, I think. Yeah. You know, um, and it, I don't know if this is the right word, but it humanizes him. Yeah. It humanizes it that archetype, which I yeah. think is really important to yeah. be doing, especially today. You know, people are so divided right now. And, and, you know, it's good to see the other as being somebody who has positive traits as well, even yeah. if. You know, most of the time they're just <laughs> they're not, yeah, yeah, mean it's true. spirited and and yeah, and not you know not nice. And of course, you know, he's got his worm slimy. Yes, he he really dotes on him. You know, it's nice to see that that other side. I think occasionally, I would never want to see that take over who he is. I think it's right. Uh, he he serves such a great purpose on the show as being this negative. Nelly kind of presence and and just like he's a thorn in everybody's side and it's you know we all have to deal with somebody like that and it's really yeah. good to see that yeah not everybody's gonna think the way you do and want to get along but you're gonna have to figure out some way to get along with these people which is a great it's great a great message for for Sesame Street yeah well let's let's move from Sesame Street to the Muppets. Okay. So for the Muppets, for those who don't know, you play Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Animal, Sam Eagle, Muppet Newsman, Marvin Suggs. <laughs> Anybody else I'm forgetting? I don't know who else. You know, I don't know. Other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so tell me about your first time doing anything with the Muppets as one of those iconic characters when you're in the room on a set and, you know, Dave Goles is over there and Steve Whitmire and, uh, you know, all the guys are there. Yeah. Yeah, well, that would have been a music video that we shot with Weezer. And it was not only the first time that I was on set, on a set, with the whole ensemble, but also it just happened to be the Muppet Show set. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. What was the video? Is it uh, Gone Fishing. F Gone Fishing, yeah. Uh, I, I loved Weezer, you know, before I... I did that video with them. I think I was the only guy there who knew who Weezer was. <laughs> um, you know, I was a young kid. And I remember, you know, Dave was like, I don't know anything about these people. What, what am I? What, who are they? What, are, what, you know, what, am, what am I supposed to do with Gonzo? I, I have no idea. And I said, okay, here's something you can go with. They're kind of known for geek rock. And that might be something that Gonzo could really sink his teeth into. And so he, 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 he did a, like, a little interview. This is like one of these little PR interviews while you're shooting something else, right? And he, he, he referred to them as geek rock. And I don't, I don't think they took that very well. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I don't think Rivers Cuomo really liked that. Not, not a fan of that. <laughs> well, I take pride in my geekdom. Yeah. I know. I don't know. You know. So maybe Dave you know, had it out for me after that. <laughs> and it continues to this day. <laughs> this day. No, but it was it was um, 
So this was unbelievably a stressful uh, experience because I was there with the whole gang for the first time on the the set of the Muppet Show, a recreation <laughs> of the set, and it was it was so weird. And it was the first time that I actually performed Fozzie for anything official. From there, then you did. It's a very merry Muppet Christmas, is that right? Yeah, like very and that soon would, afterwards. That was like a, a full movie. Yeah, it was it was for TV, but it was a movie the way it was shot. I think it was 10 weeks of shooting. Really? 10 weeks? Vancouver. That's that's a long we don't get that kind of time these days. <laughs> yeah, Do yeah. We? It was it was big. And uh, And Piggy had a big storyline in it. She had a big storyline. Fozzie had his own runner. Uh, and I just go back and think of how the the producers must have felt. How Brian Henson must have felt just, you know, handing these roles over to this new guy that they really didn't have much experience uh, with. I, you know, I'd been on Sesame Street, but the Muppets, you know, that was, uh, that was a separate entity. And they may not have been aware of what you were doing on Sesame. They're, they're really on their own track doing their own thing. Not a lot, I don't think. So it was, they had a lot of faith in me, but... I'm sure it was nerve-wracking for them. <laughs> was it nerve-wracking for you? Uh, well, sure, sure. But did, I knew did you feel it, the weight of it? But I said, yeah, yeah. But I, but I also knew this is something I could do. And you know, I think at one time they were thinking, well, maybe he'll just do some looping for some of the characters, and we'll have one of the other performers manipulate the character and. and but I, I, I said, no, I, I, I can do this. Uh, give me, give me a shot. If it's not working out, you can pull me. <laughs> that's fine. Right. But I'm not going to disappoint you. Wow, that's some confidence there. I, well, yeah, yeah. You have to have confidence as a performer. You do. You can't Period. let the that that feeling of responsibility guide you because you will crumble. I yes. think it's there. It's just back here. It's, you know, you put it in the back of your head and, you know, this is my responsibility. I've got to come through. I can do this. Yes. I, it, it's not about not listening to that voice. It's not about shrugging off the responsibility or um, denying that it, that it is a big deal. It's about embracing that yes. and saying, I can do this. I love that. It's embracing it, acknowledging it, and forging ahead. Yeah, yeah. Because you can do it. Yeah. So, so uh, that's that's what I did, and it, it turned out pretty good, I think. Was there a point when anybody came up to you and said, "Yeah, you're right. You've got this." Uh, <laughs> I. We're I not really known for doing that. It should so. be said. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's not really a time. No. Where people really do come up and go, "You've got this." You get that affirmation. Because you get the next gig. Yes. There has not ever been a time when uh, I was told that I got the job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just were. It's just I got the call. You got the call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it happens, to, it happens to everybody. Uh, I've done yeah, phone calls. I've made phone calls to people and said, congratulations, you're going to play this role. Well, I think maybe in in – more recent times that's that's started to change and you've helped usher in those new times 
And uh, it was the case, it was definitely the case with Oscar. It, it, that was like a real definitive. I think part of that had to do with Carol being still around and he and Debbie were just very, very sure uh, that they wanted me to do it. And he was the decider. Yeah. Uh, so I want to hear about Frank. Was there ever a time that you were doing Piggy or Fozzie in front of him? <laughs> Um, yeah, there's... Because we talked how awkward that is. It is awkward. You know, it's like, you're here, you should be doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Why am I doing your thing for you? <laughs> do you do you have something like that, where that happened? Yeah, there are a couple times when that happened. <laughs> he visited the set of Letters to Santa once while I was shooting a song with Dave, uh, and it was... Gonzo and Fozzie, and I saw, I saw him come in the room, and I just I bolted. <laughs> did, did you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> like you didn't know he was going to be there. No. I didn't. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just did. I, 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 you know. Then I, I went up and said hi, and we talked. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah. But I was at a read through once mm-hmm. back when. Frank had a script he was hoping would be filmed as a movie with the Muppets. It was the cheapest Muppet movie ever made, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. that's right. A project that had been started a long time ago by Jerry Jewell. And I guess Frank, I'm not sure who originally penned the original script, but it was this project that had been started a long time ago, and Frank wanted to bring it back and do some rewrites. And so he did some heavy rewrites with a couple other collaborators. And we did this read-through, and I was invited to do the read-through. And we had talked already, Frank and I had talked, and he talked about how he might want to perform. And I said, that's fine with me. That'd be great. That'd be (laughs) be fantastic to have you come back. You know, and I've always said, and I've said this to him, that he's got – a parking space reserved mm-hmm. should he ever want to play. I did not know that you were in charge of transportation. Yeah, yeah. You are? I am. I didn't you are really a jack of all trades. Yeah. I you know, I I, I could get you a, a pass. Can you get me a pass? Yeah. I'd like to not have to park on the street. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you had this read through. Yeah. So we had this and Frank was and there. Frank was there, and he, and everybody else, and Frank and I had spoken, you know, and it, it was, I was kind of on of the understanding that you know he was gonna he was gonna come back to his characters for this one project, which you know would have been great, would have loved to have seen it happen, and I was looking forward to you know having this journey with Frank, you know, with, yes. you know, with these characters possibly assisting him and just, you know, having this real quality time with him on the same production with these characters. It it wasn't meant to be. So we we get to this read through and he has me read all the parts, all of his characters at the read through. Uh, <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> And I, uh, you know, I oblige. Yep. I oblige. I can't tell you that it was the easiest thing for me <laughs> no, to I, do, but I, by, but I obliged. He wanted to hear it. 
He wanted to hear. It. Yeah, he wanted to. He, wa- he was there as the writer, kind yeah. of, wasn't he, and the mm-hmm. director? So he kind of just wanted to hear what the words sounded like coming out. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and then and then it was funny because we we got about halfway through, and then and then uh, he came around to everybody and like was giving us all notes on how to carry uh, the material forward for the second half because he wanted okay. to you know he wanted it to just sparkle as much as it possibly could. And so he took me to the side and I thought he was going to give me some, you know, some pointers about Peggy and, and Fozzie and Sam and animal. And and he starts talking to me about how all the rats should have Brooklyn accents. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. Yes. He had no notes for you. No. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, let me hear, let me hear a little bit of your, 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 your Brooklyn (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, like yeah. this. Is this what you're talking about? Like uh, more, more yeah. Brooklyn, more Brooklyn, more Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, that movie didn't ever come to fruition. No, it didn't. It didn't. I don't know what politics was at play, but we did not wind up doing that movie. Yeah, but we did end up doing the Muppets in 2011. Yes. And in 2014, we did Muppets Most Wanted, which which was like the first movie that the Muppets had done, the 2011 Muppet movie. In, oh, many. It was the know, first movie, years. you know, proper movie that I had done with the Muppets. Yeah. Do you have any specific thoughts or memories about those films? Well, I guess the biggest, most beautiful memory for me is that I became a father right before doing that first movie and a father again right before... We started doing the second one, and I took my family in tow, and uh, it was this amazing adventure, both on set and back at home. Yeah, I love that. (laughs) That's that's lovely. We shot The Muppets in L.A., so your family came out to L.A. You don't live in L.A. And then we shot Muppets Most Wanted in London, and so your family came to London. And how great to have them to come home to at the end of a long day of shooting. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. You know, I didn't get to see uh, as much of them as I would have liked, but I did get to see them. Yes, you did. They were there. (laughs) They were there with me as opposed to, you know, still being on the East Coast of the United States. But the movies themselves were... They were really positive experiences for me. I I was really proud of the work that I did, but also that we all did as a group together. Yeah, I agree with that. We really had each other's backs Mm -hmm. and were there for each other during it. And and the response, uh, you know, certainly of the 2011 film was largely positive from the public and and even the reviews. Oh, yeah. You know, when I first saw uh, a, a screening of it, I knew it had the potential to really entertain people. It was a real uh, treat to see how right I was. Because <laughs> being a fan of, of the Muppets, you, you have expectations. Yeah. And for us, we're always aware that yeah. we're, we need to try to meet those expectations of what fans have. And it's sometimes you just don't know what no, it's, it's, it's true. how it's going to you know, turn but out. As, you know, we both grew up as fans ourselves. So, you know, we're in touch with that side of ourselves, even as we perform with the Muppets. And That's right. and, and sometimes, you know, it, it can be a frustrating affair where you feel like, oh gosh, this isn't the thing that I would want to see as a fan, but, you know, maybe we can still make it really entertaining and, and people will still like it. Both of those movies 
they're not movies I would have written, but they wound up being, I think, really entertaining and showcased all the characters that people love really well. So I'm, I'm very proud of those films. The music from those films is just fantastic. fantastic. Especially in the second film, mm-hmm. I thought the, the songs were really elevated. And, yes. and in fact, you did something I wanted to mention, mm-hmm. you know, it impressed me so much. I remember telling it to you when we were shooting it, when we shot uh, the song that Piggy does with Celine Dion, Mm -hmm. Something So Right. First of all, it's really an emotional performance. The screen performance is emotional and there's a weight to it, you know, that a a longing feeling that Mm -hmm. I get when I watch that. And, but also you hit this high note (laughs) in there. I don't know how you did that. It's amazing. It's such a great, it's a great performance. Yeah, actually I took the high note. When, yeah, you did. When Celine and Miss Piggy are singing, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm the one on the higher note. You're the higher note. <laughs> yeah, the high note. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, but it's so impressive. It really and it, again, crazy. speaks back to your flexible vocal cords. Uh, yeah, that that song, I you know, at first when I started singing that song in the recording studio, I thought, okay, I'm going to approach this as if it were the new uh, Never Before, Never Again. And, you know, Miss Piggy in that, number is she's broad and it's uh, ridiculous she's not quite hitting the notes sometimes and she falters and it's 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 uh almost a, a parody of a genre of of song and in in her singing is ridiculous but then <laughs> as i i got into it very quickly i i felt like i'm not serving this song in the material and the emotion of the the moment in the movie if I go there. So it was a choice that I I changed I, I, I changed course with and ultimately decided I should try to sing this as well as Miss Piggy could possibly sing it. Well I think you you nailed it. And I think it goes back again to speak to the humanity of these characters. Yeah. It 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 shows a side of her that maybe you don't always see the vulnerable side, mm-hmm. the, the the open open side that's been hurt. Yeah, um, you know it's 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 lovely. Well, thank you, thank you. It's yeah, and I think James Bobin, the director of both of those movies, he he has such a great eye, and he is so good at bringing visuals to music, and for that number, but also all the others in in both of those movies. They're just really well staged, I feel. Yeah, they're pretty to look at and employ some fun puppetry stuff, too. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Eric, but it's time to ask a puppeteer about not puppets. Ask a puppeteer about not puppets. On today's Ask a Puppeteer about not puppets, we've got a question for Sesame Street Muppet performer Ryan Dillon. Ryan Dillon, what or who makes you laugh the most? Oh, it's, oh, God, I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue, and I just can't think of what that thing is. The times I've laughed the hardest are, um, you know, the group of people makes me laugh at Sesame. My, you know, Mark and Frankie make me laugh really, really hard. But you, uh, Mm -hmm. I laugh the hardest when I'm really tired at work on the floor, and it's like 6.30 in in the evening, and... um, the time of day where you're really not supposed to be laughing because you got everybody just wants to go home. Everyone wants to go home, and that's when you just start. You start yeah. the wheels start turning. Then, but you know, it might just be something that like one of our camera guys says 
under his breath and it just it'll just hit me funny and it won't even maybe be something funny but it'll just be it'll just tickle me in a way usually like but don't like i'm not a pun person i don't like puns and i don't like wackety schmackety mm -hmm. like i it's usually the delivery of the, the way some when somebody says something and it's not intended the way they they said it <laughs> there there's something about that that makes me laugh and that was the most um vague answer to a not vague question you had a very specific question and i didn't answer it very Succinctly. And it also was kind of about puppets. It was about puppets. Ask the puppeteer about my puppets. We are back with Eric Jacobson. You know, we are, with the notable exception of Dave Goals, we are in the second generation at least yeah. of Muppet performers now. Performers who have taken on these legacy characters uh, like you have with Miss Piggy or Bill with Rolf and some others and David with Scooter and Janice mm -hmm. and... Uh, even Peter with Link and myself with Kermit. Can you talk about character, creating a character, especially characters that are so important to people? Uh, naturally, there's a vocal component that we talked about, but what are the, do you think are the most important things in creating a character when it comes to those legacy characters that people love so much? You're not just trying to do an imitation. No, not just. You know, it, it, that's a part of it. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an important part, I feel, that audiences still feel like they recognize the characters and, you know, a, a big component of that for many people, it's a surface component, admittedly, but it's, you can't deny that a lot of people tune into the voice. So I, I take special care with that. It's something that I feel is one of my strong suits. So, you know, I, I always pay attention to that, but of course the character is more than skin deep. It's not just the voice at all. So you have to be a student of the character. You have to have watched a lot of material. I think over a course of a long time, you know, such as we have, it helps because it becomes ingrained in you. It's not something that you just crammed on the night before. It's something that has become a part of you over a long period of time. And um, and so there are a lot of instincts there that you don't have to think about, which is great when you're performing because you don't have time to think about every choice that you make. But, uh, you know, there's a there's a reverence, of course, for what came before. But you also have to, again, have that confidence in yourself and feel like you can express uh, who you are through these characters. And that's yeah. okay, because it's it's inevitable. As much as you might study, be a good student, there's going to be a part of you that comes through these characters. So you better be okay with that. Yeah, and it's kind of necessary for the character in order for it to really move move on through history. Yeah, to, to and to be evolve a little bit, and, to be real and to feel spontaneous mm -hmm. and yeah, be alive. Yeah, that's absolutely essential. I want to talk briefly about the ABC series, okay. primetime series. Was that that was your first primetime TV series? That is that right? Was I know there's a couple of different mm -hmm. thoughts about that show overall. Yeah. What were some good things about that series that you remember? Oh, um, gosh, the crew. Yeah, the crew was fantastic. The crew. Uh, I work mostly on the East Coast, and the crews are great out here. I don't know if I 
what might have led me to having some prejudice in <laughs> Hollywood crews, yeah. but they were amazing and so supportive and and friendly and you know just wanting to to make a good show and 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 have a good time while doing it all so professional and all just all up and down really nice folk yeah i agree and this was a show we shot in a very different way than we used than we're used to shooting we kind of oh, yeah. took a leap of faith that they were going to do right by the muppets and i think largely how it was shot was I successful we all no, i didn't either. i didn't think it could be done that you know all these we we so often rely on shots that framed from a tripod and you know that are locked off or you know have a real parameters that we can count on in in yeah. you know this is all handheld and more than one camera at a time more than one camera at a time which you know we you know I, I i still will attest that we cannot play more than one camera yeah at a time but the way they positioned the cameras we didn't have to really like yeah. they were over the shoulder which we didn't need to play that camera yeah we were and they were protecting us they we were, were protecting us and they yeah. were making sure that we looked good in the camera shots that were going to be used for our lines you know for our yeah. our side of the yeah. conversation yeah so that was a very positive experience uh, where do you think that the show missed the mark well i mean this is not going to be controversial because i think this yeah, is i think it was a very funny show i yep. think it has moments of puppetry that had never been attempted before on television. I think there's a lot to like about it. I yeah, the, like, I mean, the writing was super crisp and smart. Yeah. And we've never been given things this meaty, this mm -hmm. emotional or yeah, yeah. weighty. It was but the truth of the matter, though, is that the tone of the show did not really coincide with who the Muppets are. And that goes back to expectation. What is an audience expecting? Yeah. Yeah. They did not expect this show. Yeah, we would have had to take them on that journey to that place. And we yes. hadn't done that. You know, the last thing that they'd seen, if they were following the Muppets, was probably Muppets Most Wanted. Mm -hmm. It's a very different feel. So it's, it's still something I'm very proud of, but I totally understand and get why people would expect something different from the Muppets. And I myself, you know, with two young children really want to be able to share whatever it is I do with the Muppets, with them. And that wasn't a show that I felt like I could do that. It's a little um, risque at times, and and um, in the humor was a little on the adult side at times. And, you know, the Muppets, I think, are they're lowbrow and highbrow, but they're never truly mean-spirited or exclusively adult in their humor. I, you know, Eric, I agree with you. And, and I had a great time on that show too. I thought it was a fantastic experience uh, being able to work with such detail on these characters day after day. I agree also that the end result did not meet the expectations of what an audience was thinking of when they were thinking of watching The Muppets. And a big component of that is watching with your kids yeah. watching with any any age it's, it's, that's what they're for that is what they're for they're 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 supposed to be family friendly you know it doesn't mean that doesn't mean 
that adults can't be entertained by it. It means that they can, and their kids can watch too. Yeah, their kids too. And be entertained. Yeah. That's what I look for in the material that we do. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And, and we kind of got to do that a little bit when we did uh, a couple of different things, live shows, mm. live performances. Yeah, We did an Outside Lands thing in San Francisco in 2016 with the Electric Mayhem, which was, uh, <laughs> for me, really an amazing experience. I, I came into it not knowing what to expect. I, I didn't know that we were going to have the unbelievable reaction yeah. that we had from that crowd. Do you remember? Oh, I do. How many tens of thousands of people were out there on that lawn? It was insane. Yeah. Watching a a puppet band <laughs> I know. really do, do their song, first yeah. gig. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. But then we got to do the Muppets Take the Bowl at the Hollywood Bowl in mm-hmm. 2017. And then the next year we did the Muppets Take the O2 in London. We're kind of returning to that classic Muppet show feel. The yeah. tone of that show was more something you could take your family to. What What do you remember about those shows, Eric? Well, they were, first of all, really collaborative efforts um, from the get-go. There, you know, there were sketch ideas or song ideas, I think, from every single one of us in the ensemble. Yeah. Like, there's something there that we came up with. And um, each one of us. And uh, so that was really fun. And workshopping the, the shows as well. Yeah, um, which was different. Was we great. hadn't really done that for a very long time where we got, uh, I think I remember there was a, like an outline for the show. Yeah. And then we had a meeting about it and we kind of pitched other ideas on top of the, the outline for the show. Mm-hmm. And then they went away and they wrote a script and came back together. And we sat around that table for, I think it was a week we were, working on it, at least gearing up to work mm-hmm, on the show. Mm-hmm. And we would read it, and then we would have other suggestions, and, we, and the show just kind of kept morphing into something we were all really, really proud of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, and it was so much fun to do and, and hear the audience's reaction which and is a new really thing. make that connection, which is yeah. something we don't normally get to do yeah. in our field. Yeah. Did, did you learn anything about these characters and their relationship with the audience from those live shows? Well, I think they just confirmed what I suspected all along, which was that they really crave um, that kind of family-friendly material from the Muppets and and the kind of antics that you would find on the Muppet show. The yeah. musical numbers, you know, every time there was a, another song, they just you could tell the audience was really really into it yeah and uh and just the just the kind of classic shtick that the muppets are known for and i thought there were so many highlights during that show it was really like watching a live muppet show yeah and yeah. um did you did you have a highlight something in those shows that you looked forward to doing every night oh yeah two there were two moments that I really enjoyed. One was Miss Piggy's big number. Yes. Um, where she sang a very interesting <laughs> rendition of Adele's Hello. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah and it was done as like this big jazzy swing number, real, you know, Broadway. Yeah. Uh, like with, f- with 10, a, 15 dancers yeah, or something like that. Yeah, with a whole fleet of dancers. 
And, <laughs> and um, you know, I, I guess not too many people listening probably actually got to, a chance to see it, but I got to help choreograph it with Michael Rooney. That's right. Who um, choreographed the movie. Choreographed the first the, movie. Yeah, yeah. And he also did something on the ABC Muppets, didn't he? Come in and do yes, he that did. number we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Miss Piggy's nice. "I'm Sorry" number, where she yes uh, apologizes in a very over the top fashion to Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then and, you so you helped choreograph this. Yeah, yeah, piece. yeah, yeah. And um, that was that was super fun to to do in tandem with Michael and. I just wanted to see Miss Piggy thrown around, thrashed around like a rag doll, <laughs> which is what we got. Which is what we wound up getting, <laughs> and it was it was great. It was great fun. It was a fun um, number. Yeah, and then and then the other bit that I really enjoyed was um, Fozzie doing that classic sketch, "The Comedian's a Bear," with right. Bobby Moynihan. I just love those old vaudevillian. Uh, Abbott and Costello, who's on first type of sketches. So that was a real treat. Yeah. And that was, that was a, I mean, lifted right from the Muppet show, that sketch. Yes. You, yes. There were some in our group that were maybe a little nervous that we were going to be leaning too heavily on nostalgia. And, I, you mm-hmm. know, I think the proof was. By the end of it, though, <laughs> everybody was really happy yes. with, with what we did. And it all, you know, it was because of that the audience reaction. The audience. Yeah. yeah. The audience reaction really was a proof of concept that, you know, a nice dose of nostalgia and fun and lightness and humor is is what people want from these characters. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's great about The Muppet Show and The Muppets in general is that while there's a lot of nostalgia associated with them, the material that they're known for is timeless. Yes. And so it, it doesn't feel like you're doing something antiquated or, or watching something really that old when you watch The Muppets and The Muppet Show and anything The Muppets did years ago. It, the comedy is so fresh and, and still so entertaining. I think that's how they've been around for this long. Yeah, yeah. You know? And speaking of being around now this long, we have a show that is on Disney Plus called Muppets Now. Yes. That we shot last last year, mostly. Mm-hmm. And we did a little bit at the very beginning of the pandemic. But yeah. uh, Miss Piggy has this recurring segment on Muppets Now called Lifestyle. Yes. And uh, you want to talk about how we shot that? <laughs> uh, we shot it very quickly. Yes. <laughs> I think everything that Miss Piggy did in Muppets Now including her lifestyle segment, as well as uh, the interview that she conducted with Aubrey Plaza and, and her other appearances, they were all done over the course of two days. There might have been, there might have been an outlier there on another day, but the bulk of what Miss Piggy does on the show was shot in two days. It's just remarkable to me that we did that much material. <laughs> it's crazy, and it's and it's crazy to me that it looks as good as it does. I mean, we yeah, just we came out of there thinking, "Oh my gosh, I don't know how they're going to edit this together." Yeah, because because we all were in. There were four sets that we were in. There for, was the, for lifestyle. 
Yeah, for lifestyle in Just the for uh, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. There were four sets in that that uh, the chat moment with, uh, with Linda, Linda Cardellini. Cardellini. Yeah, and there were four actual sets: the one that Miss Piggy and Dudley were on, and then there was the one that Linda Cardellini was on with with whoever she was with. Then there was there were two more sets yeah. that had other Muppet characters on, and we could all hear everybody all the time. But and it was, everybody was talking all the time. At the yes. same time, it was chaos. It was chaos. And it there was. might be there there might have been the semblance of an arc or through line for each of those mm-hmm. chats, but it was quickly abandoned. It, it was it was so chaotic. I, I had no idea how they were gonna edit those together and make them watchable. <laughs> but, it, but they do work. They I think they do they work do. and they're they're, they do. they're a lot I have more to fun admit they, than they what do. I was thinking. Yeah, and then and then there were all these other setups for Miss Piggy's lifestyle. It was the the day, stuff. Days of work packed into packed into a day, a day. <laughs> yeah, we did everything with Tay in one day. Yeah, and and they were you know and they were different setups for each of those appearances that Tay made. In yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, it was it's just insane. Is insane, but it you know it. Diddle. I th- I think it turned out looking pretty good, and there's you know a lot of funny little moments, and the whole show came together in a way that really surprised me because it wasn't yeah. supposed to be a show. It wasn't supposed with. to be like that. Yeah, they were supposed to be yeah. these shorts. Yeah, they were all supposed to live on their own, but they they came together. You know, we did those kind of wraparounds uh, from home, and it all kind of. Pieced together into something, and and yeah. I I really enjoyed uh, my whole family really enjoyed watching them together. That yeah, was so, a, did, so, so that ours. was a real treat. And by Miss Piggy's side was her uh, her valet, her trusted friend. Yeah, yeah, Uncle I, Deadly. I just love I just love that newfound relationship that she I has with Uncle Deadly. I do too, and that was one of the things that came out of the ABC series, which yeah. I'm great. I'm grateful for because I love that relationship. It's nice for Miss Piggy to have a confidant. Yeah, and, um, and Deadly is one of those few characters that can tell Miss Piggy exactly what he really thinks about her and her actions, and she kind of ultimately does uh, appreciate it. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, <laughs> <laughs> it may take a little while to get there, but yeah, he also yeah. knows where he can tread and where he probably shouldn't. Yeah, he's pretty. Yeah, he's he's pretty good about that. He can navigate her treacherous waters. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's also nice that she has somebody that she can, she feels like she can open up to. Yeah. Um. You know that was nice on the ABC show. It was. Uh, I, do you remember that? There was that episode where she was looking for a friend. Mm-hmm. And the whole while. Uncle Deadly was, had been there for her the whole way, and I love that scene in the end where Miss Piggy is sitting very sad at the at the desk at her desk on the show, and Deadly comes up to her and says, "I'm your friend. I'm here for you." Mm-hmm. And there's this really sweet, again, very human moment between them, which that's when you get those things, those little moments, those little nuggets from these characters that just make them feel human and are fun to play too. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. And I mean, we're so lucky in this job, you know. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, it's a dream come true for me to be a part of something that I grew up adoring, mm-hmm. and in uh, you know, adoring not just the how funny the characters were, but also adoring the the message 
that they represented of um, of how we're all in this together, hmm. and um, you know we may all we we're all different, but we each have something to offer one another, and you know that's that's a really beautiful message. Yeah, and and you know to top that off, we get to work side by side with our friends, which is pretty rare. Yeah, yeah. To be able to do that, and I'd say you and I are pretty pretty good friends, right? Yes. <laughs> we, 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 I would say we are. We, we hang out a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to be you know? sarcastic in this moment. No, no. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we, but we do. We get that unique opportunity to play some of these yeah. characters, these it's, amazing characters, bring them to life, move it, them forward in history together. It's, it's really cool. And like you said, uh, the opportunity to work with the same people for such a long period of time, people that you really do consider your, your best friends in the world. Yeah. It's it's very special. Uh, that's not something that's common in any field of endeavor these days, let alone acting. Yeah. And it's not lost on, on any of us, I don't think. We are all very aware how how fortunate, how how lucky we how lucky we are, and, and we're all very mm-hmm. grateful for this opportunity that we've been. Yeah, um, for sure. Eric, you have another interest other than puppetry that I just want to talk about for a second. And of course, you know, of course, your family, you know, which we didn't we didn't talk too much about, but you have this amazing family, your wife Mary, your daughter Scarlett and Sabrina, and by the way, my wife Kelly and I are Scarlett's godparents. So Wait. Yeah, did you what? know that? Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kelly when and I When did this are, happen? Oh, I mean, it was a long time ago. Are you did able you, to just remember? like Self-anoint yourself? Like no, no. That? It was. I think you you asked. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, what I'm trying to say was, you have another interest that I want to talk a bit about with you, and it's 3D okay. movies. 3D movies. I thought. Yeah. I thought maybe. <laughs> what got you interested? So you uh, you have this interest in 3D movies, uh, yeah. uh, a Blu-ray in particular, right? That you. What got you interested in this, and what is <laughs> what does that mean for you? What, I, what is? I love. I love gadgets. I love toys. I'm, I, you know, I love puppets. It kind of goes hand in hand, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you're I, a lover love, of film. I love film. Yeah, and who doesn't love 3D? <laughs> right. 3D. It's so cool. It's like real life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what have you been doing? I, I, you know, okay. So I've been collecting 3D movies for a little yeah. while. I. You know, I, I I got a 3D TV when they came out, and I didn't really use it all that much. There wasn't a lot of content that came out in the beginning. And then what happened was a couple of years ago, they stopped making 3D TVs. And right. that, that made me get really, all of a sudden, interested. Yeah, you doubled in what down. My, yeah, in <laughs> what my TV could do. I was like, oh my gosh, uh, uh, they're going to stop making 3D movies soon. I better collect whatever I want now because they're not going to be around much longer. And, and so I started doing that. And I got into collecting like the older movies um, from the original 3D craze in the 1950s. These were movies that were originally shot in 3D? Yeah. So there were about 50 3D movies that were made during the original 3D craze in the 1950s. And not all of them have come out on Blu-ray, but there are a few, maybe about half of them have come out. And they are amazing. 
they're, they're, and they're amazing in their technical achievement. The 3D is striking. It, everybody thinks that you watched those old 3D movies with those red and blue glasses yeah. that don't that's really work very well. Oh. And that's not the case. The technology was quite similar to uh, the technology we use today. They're polarized lenses, and as a result, the quality is astounding. And so watching those movies, is really it, it really immerses you in another time. I um, bet it would. As yeah. well as in the story of, of the film. Are these all primarily sci-fi? A lot of them are sci-fi, but uh, yeah, a, a good chunk of them are sci-fi. Uh, it came from outer space and movies like that. But there were 3D movies that were shot in every genre. There were noirs, there were westerns. John Wayne did a Western. There were musicals. Kiss Me Kate was shot in 3D. They're, they're, they run the gamut. Do you have a favorite? Mm. Do I have a favorite? Let me think about that. I'm not sure that I have a favorite, um, but off the top of my head, there uh, there's a couple of shorts that the Three Stooges did that are in 3D, and they really <laughs> take advantage of the novelty of 3D and in in the ability to to put objects in front of the screen. A lot of modern day 3D does not do that. I guess they're, they're just afraid to uh, be that aggressive. But does it seem, seem gimmicky that doing that? I mean, now it it could, but it I doesn't guess. have to. Like the Three Stooges shorts are very gimmicky, but th- they're that throwing makes sense. things straight toward the viewer. But um, there's plenty of opportunity to just have uh, to have a scene kind of bulge out and just immerse you a little bit more into the environment on the screen. And and movies today don't do that by and large. There's a there's a few there's um let's see modern day the new Ghostbusters movie is really good. It's really good. good. And they do something with frame-breaking effects where they crop the the image and have ghosts and apparitions and other things break the the edge of the frame. So it looks like it's coming out of the screen. That's pretty cool. Like like literally spilling over the edges. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really neat. That's really neat. But, I, you know, yeah, so I love 3D. I love... Love VR and video games, and I guess it's all kind of connected. It all kind of makes sense if you know yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I just <laughs> I had to bring it up because it is something I know that you're very yeah, interested I, in. Yeah, that's that was that, that was my that. Uh, yeah that was my quarantine project this past yeah. summer. Yeah, you got you had to have something. Yeah. Okay, Eric, I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Okay. Now, so, uh, just whatever comes up off the top of your head. All right. Are you ready? No. Okay. No, that wasn't one of the questions. Okay, that was this. The next but thing that was that was that. That's the kind, the kind of, of yeah. That's the kind of way. You're for? Yes, yeah. You know, just off the top of your head. Okay, right, here we go. What's the hardest part about being a puppeteer? Uh, the the back aches. <laughs> yeah, you might not have said that when you were in your twenties. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now that's my answer. Yeah. yeah. What's the easiest part? The easiest part, um, being with my friends. What is your biggest strength as a performer? Ooh, uh, I I guess um, I 
I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to brag or anything. But I. I feel like I. I'm able to dissect material really well. I agree with that. What What is your biggest weakness as a performer? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's uh, my ability to dissect material really well. Not everything deserves the same. <laughs> You're right. Degree yes. of uh, scrutiny. <laughs> That's true. Uh, what is one of your favorite things about being a Muppet performer? Oh, uh, it's, it's, I get to play for a living. If you weren't a puppeteer, what mm-hmm. would be your career? A weatherman. Wait, really? <laughs> I think we all would be, wouldn't we, Matt? I, just because you know how to work on a screen there yeah, and with work the backwards image to a camera. Flipped. That's, yeah, that's. Really, my that's what our skill set is good for. You're right. It's it's television puppetry and weather yeah. person. You're right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what is the best piece of advice that you've gotten during your career? Wow, best piece of advice. You know, I guess nobody ever told me this, but it's something that I kind of figured out on my own. Mm-hmm. And I tell a lot of other people, and that is, if you love something truly, you will get good at it because you won't be able to stop yourself from practicing and getting better. That's good. Uh, Jerry Nelson once said to me, our buddy Jerry, said, Sesame Street is great, but you always have to have something that is your own, mm-hmm. that you create, that comes from yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, what, is, what is that for you, Eric? I love to write and produce murder mystery parties. <laughs> yes. Yes, you, you do. You know that. I've been to you've a been couple cast of them. in a few. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you've actually and it's not it's not like you're taking, you know, they they have some that are prepackaged that you can get and you can yeah. you know, that is not what no, you do, Eric. No, no you no. write it from the beginning. Yeah. You write the whole thing. You create the characters. And it's, you, not, a, it's not just like a, a dinner party where everybody's sitting around a table reading a script. No. It's, you come in character. You, you got to come in character. You have, you have goals. You have secrets. You have yeah. you know, bits of information you're able to share. And then all hell breaks loose at the party because it's up to all the invitees to, to handle that information the way they see fit. It's that's a true. lot of and it's, fun. It is, and very complex, which yeah, this yeah. totally makes sense that you do this to me. <laughs> it well, it's totally not just does. one. It's not. There's not just one mystery. No, at the party, there is, not. There, there no. is usually kind of a centerpiece murder, or mm-hmm. you know, centerpiece mystery. But then there, are, every character has their own secret that they're hiding. They don't want discovered, and their own objectives while they're at the party, whether it's to steal the secret plans or to get uh, another player to uh, fund their research. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a very complicated jigsaw puzzle. Have you ever thought about marketing these? (laughs) I don't, they really are fantastic. I don't think most people (laughs) would have the drive to run a party like this. I, well, 
I know it does take somebody <laughs> that is really driven, but I do think that there's a market for it. I do I really do. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm, could be a I'm nice glad you had side a, hustle. I'm glad you've had a good time at my at my parties. Yes, absolutely. And I, uh, you know what, Eric? That's a great. That's great for me to to hear that because now I can say to you, I hope you've had a great time here <laughs> on Below the Frame. I hope you enjoyed talking yeah. about your life and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate you talking with me, and I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Matt. Thanks. Thanks. That's it. That's Below the Frame Season 1. We will be back with Season 2 of Below the Frame, so keep an eye and an ear out. You can do that by following us on Instagram, Twitter, all the socials, whatever those might be. Our uh, show today was produced by me, our theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by the Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast artwork was created by Dave Holtine at DaveHoltineDesign.com. The award from our sponsor players today for the Good Eye Focus ad were Tal Bennett, Megan Pyfus, Martin P. Robinson, and Stephanie DeBruzzo as Edith. Thanks to Eric Jacobson, Stephanie DeBruzzo, Ryan Dillon, Martin P. Robinson, and as always, my son Jack for being part of this episode. And thanks to you, the fans, for listening. I'm Matt Vogel, and we will see you next season when, once again, we'll go below the frame. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. If you want to be in the know about how we put together our little show, if you like to hear the puppeteers and play the characters that you cheer, then go, go, go below the frame. If you got to find out how to do it, Physically through it You demand to learn about the secrets Here's another line that ends with secrets Join us as 